From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugas, and this is The Explainer. In my universe of clients, where my clients are all actually innocent, and I'm trying to establish that, they won't do that because they can't. And many of them had the opportunity to plea for five, 10, 12 years before going to trial and proclaimed, I did not do this. I won't stand up and raise my hand and say, I did this for this sentence. I have to, I'm, I'm innocent. And then they go to trial and then they get life. Welcome to season eight of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. In capital punishment news, the U.S. Supreme Court recently reinstated the death penalty for Boston bomber Jahar Sarnaya, and Oklahoma is poised to pass a bill that stipulates that to get off death row, an inmate would have to admit their crimes. Innocent Clinic Director Craig Trochino looks at the state of punishment in a partisan world. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Morning, Craig. Thanks for coming back. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. So let's start with Jahar Sarnayev, uh, the Boston bomber. He was convicted on 30 terrorism-related charges and sentenced to death on six. But isn't Massachusetts a no-death penalty state? It is a no-death penalty state. Uh, however, um, Mr. Sarnayev was uh, ch- indicted and charged federally by the United States of America, not the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So even though Massachusetts does not have the death penalty, they're not the prosecuting authority. The United States is, and there's a federal death penalty. So when he was convicted of the federal crime, not a Massachusetts crime, a federal crime, uh, that carried a possible death penalty sanction, he's a, the, then the federal jury and the federal judge sentenced him to death. So how did the case get to the Supreme Court? Um, Well, uh, it started in the United States District Court in Massachusetts, which is essentially the trial court where they had the the jury and the trial. And then he was convicted and sentenced there. And his first appeal, his appeal as a matter of right, which is usually called a direct appeal, went to the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Uh, And they reviewed the case. And in that case, he argued that he should get a new trial uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, that he wasn't allowed to question juries, uh, jurors about certain media aspects. And then two, in, in mitigation, and I'll get to that in a second, in mitigation, he wasn't allowed to present evidence that his brother uh, was the mastermind of this entire thing. And evidence of that was that he was involved in a, mer- a, 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 a you know, jihadish uh, teen- termed murder uh, about a year before in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, taking a step. Well, and then the Circuit Court of Appeals reversed his conviction and said, you were right, you should get a new sentencing uh, and a new trial. And then the United States government uh, took an appeal to uh, request the United States Supreme Court to take the case, and which they did. And the United States Supreme Court reversed the First Circuit Court of Appeals decision and kept the death penalty in place. Wasn't the liberal justice's dissent rather tepid? You know, no, it wasn't. I, I mean, I, it can be read that way because it's not a fire and brimstone descent. And and boy, I love a fire and brimstone descent just as much as the next guy. I, you know, the old uh, Justice Marshall, Justin Brennan descents back in the day used to make me happy to, to read them. Uh, they make me personally like happy. Um, but the methodical point by point descents like this one uh, make me legally happy. 
and they make me legally happy because all, although there's you know some warmth in the fire and brimstone, what these methodical descents do is set up a judicially ascribed roadmap for lawyers in the next case, right? So now I know what judges are thinking, especially Supreme Court justices, uh, on this. And so I have something to cite to, even though it's a dissent, to say this is the way these cases should be interpreted. And that dissent, even though it's not an exciting case to read, an exciting dissent to read, it goes point by point by point through all the reasons why the district court judge abused the discretion. Um, and and you, if you, when you read it, you see this phrase, abuse of discretion, discretion abused all over the time. That means that that's the, the, um, the standard of review. When appellate courts review cases, they have to have a standard of review. And depending on what kind of ruling is being reviewed, that standard may change. In this particular case, all these standards were abuse of discretion, uh, very high burden for the defense to meet on appeal. Uh, but the dissent goes through and painstakingly, I thought, um, in, a, in a relatively short dissent, but very painstakingly goes through and methodically says why um, the majority is wrong in its conclusion and that this the, the circuit court was correct in ruling that the district court, the trial court, abused its discretion. Mm, so the how-to guide. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so does the decision by the Supreme Court toggle anything one way or the other in terms of like... Trump's lifting of the the death penalty and Biden's reinstatement of the moratorium? Um, I don't know if it does or not. One of the troubling things about it for me uh, is, well, you know, at the end of the, uh, what was that, that would have been at the end of the Trump administration that summer, there was 13 executions in a very short period of time, which was uh, just legally, morally repugnant. Uh, um, and then President Biden uh, last summer put it, it said he was going to have a moratorium on federal death penalties. That wouldn't that doesn't impact state death penalties because he doesn't have authority over the state penalties. Um, and uh, the attorney general is going to look at the protocols and so forth in, in, in dealing with that. That was all good and well. However, the lawyers arguing in the United States Supreme Court that Mr. Sarnayev should have the death penalty that's Biden's Department of Justice. So on one hand, President Biden is saying, I want a moratorium on the death penalty. And on the other hand, he had his solicitor general in front of the United States Court of Appeals saying, execute this guy. So I don't know if the toggle is necessarily between the previous administration and the Biden administration. I think there's some disconnect between what President Biden is saying about the death penalty and what is actually being done on the road in Department of Justice activity in, in these cases. I, I'd like to see some consistency over it, uh, but the fact that the moratorium exists is is welcome. Is it me or is justice in America getting more strident? <laughs> Let's talk about I respectfully decline to answer that question on grounds that it may tend to incriminate me. <laughs> so we can talk about Oklahoma. If the Republican-led legislature prevails, an inmate cannot get off death row without admitting guilt. So even if the inmate has stood by his innocence for the duration of his trial and incarceration, he would not be eligible for clemency or a pardon. I guess my first gobsmack question would be why? Uh, why indeed? Um, I, they, they just wrote down what's, what I think has been an unwritten rule in clemency pardon type applications uh, as far as I can remember. Uh, pardon boards and clemency boards want a... Uh, an inmate to say, I did it, I'm sorry, I'm remorseful, 
please, I'm a changed person, let me out. Um, and some do, in fact, do that when that's the case. But in my universe of clients, where my clients are all uh, you know, actually innocent, and I'm trying to establish that, they won't do that because they can't. And many of them had the opportunity to plea for 5, 10, 12 years before going to trial and proclaimed, I did not do this. I won't stand up and raise my hand and say, I did this for this sentence. I have to, I'm, I'm innocent. And then they go to trial and then they get life, right? Um, and at the risk of sidetracking this and another discussion about the coercive nature of plea bargaining, um, that that's what happens. And then they're in prison and they come up for parole. So the parole boards want to hear this, uh, you know, this admission uh, and, and remorse from them. But if you didn't do it, it's a hard thing to ask somebody to go before a parole board and knowing that they didn't do it uh, and didn't commit this crime to say, yes, I did. I'm sorry. Um, and in many cases, had they done that, they'd be out, but I'm still litigating their case on it. And there's just now recently have been the 3,000 exonerations nationwide uh, since 1989. All of these people didn't do it. They all went to prison for long periods of time uh, for crimes they didn't commit. And parole boards expect them to say, I did it, please let me out. Uh, but they do expect it. So Oklahoma, I don't know if they're necessarily, an, they're an outlier maybe in writing it down. But I think in general practice in most states, parole boards do want to hear that. Um, I find it, I, I, I don't know, I don't know the reason for it. Uh, just try maybe to make somebody feel a little bit better about the process of letting somebody out who shouldn't be there in the first place. So in a second bit of spitefulness, the bill would restrict death row inmates from even going before a parole board until their execution date is set. Do I have that right? That could be like years and years for someone who may be innocent. Yeah, that's a that's a little bit different um, because it does take a long time to be eligible for a warrant. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I don't know the the Oklahoma procedure, but in Florida, it takes it, it would take years because you have your trial. Then you have your first direct appeal, which goes immediately to the Florida Supreme Court. And then there might be post-conviction uh, litigation, ineffective assistance of counsel, many of the other things that can happen in post-conviction. That gets litigated back in the circuit court, back in the trial court. Um, then that gets appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. The Florida Supreme Court you know, uh, affirms the appeal. Uh, then there's the ability to go into federal court because the Florida Supreme Court could be getting it wrong. And they have, on a regular basis, uh, gotten it wrong. Uh, and then you go into federal court and then litigate in a federal court. We're talking years and thousands of hours of attorney time before we even get to the point where the person is eligible for uh, a, an execution date. So to deny somebody the possibility of parole until uh, until that happens, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what I, I, what their reasoning for it is. It might be that they want appellate processes all to run through. Um but, you know, there's many cases that are sitting there uh, that might be eligible for execution dates uh, and warrants um, that, you know, the appeals process has been long since run. Uh, so those people might be sitting there uh, waiting for an execution date. And then that radically compresses the time. It's not like they say you're going to have an execution date in 2035. They're going to you're going to have an execution date in 90 days mm -hmm. now. Not only do I have to have lawyers that are 
you know, trying to move heaven and earth to to get a petition together to stop the execution, stay the execution, and so forth, and all all the stress and work that's going on. Now I have that compressed time to move for pardon or clemency in the process in Oklahoma. It it's just it's it's the 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 main problem with it I see is a time crunch, time burden on it to do what essentially is several years worth of work in a very, very short period of time. Under-resourced, too, by the attorneys. Of course, yes. Well, Oklahoma hasn't exactly been the poster child for successful executions, but that's a pretty crowded field, right, in Florida, <laughs> Governor DeSantis? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll all say about that is Florida leads the nation and people who are exonerated from death row. Um, but we still want to keep executing people, notwithstanding the fact that we know we get it wrong on a regular basis. You know, some people will say, oh, well, the fact that they got exonerated before they're ex executed may means that the system works. I, I, I don't want to rely on the post-conviction process to make sure the system works because it's Byzantine and it's very, very difficult and very few cases actually win. The fact that we've, you know, exonerated, I think, 23 people from death row in Florida, um, I think speaks volumes on our ability to get things right. Mm -hmm. Um, with that little bit of infuriation, is there anything else you'd like to add in closing? I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> there, there is. And, and, you know, given what's happened this week, I, I, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be prudent for me to end this without discussing the Judge Jackson nomination. Um, and um, there's been a, there's been a lot that I've seen that is capable of, uh, of comment and criticism and essentially scorn. Um, most of that I'll leave aside. There are two things that really bother me on this. One is the attacks on Judge Jackson for being a defense lawyer and a public defender. And two, the attacks on her about sentencing. Now, being a public defense, she, she would be the first Supreme Court justice in history to have worked as a public defender. Having that perspective on the court absolutely invaluable. Um, and, and she's worked as a defense lawyer, too. Uh, I think Thurgood Marshall was the only other justice who ever worked as a defense lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and so having that perspective on the court, not be, coming from the perspective of having represented the government and defended the government's actions, it, it's it's invaluable. And to, to view that as a negative in her uh, in, in her nomination is is outrageous, especially when those criticisms come from people who want to be, quote, originalists, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, because Thomas Jefferson famously, famously said, trial by jury is the only anchor ever yet imagined by man to hold a government to the principles of its constitution. Now, we're talking about all the hoopla and cry about tyranny, and we need to honor the constitution. Trial by jury, the only anchor ever yet imagined to hold a government to the principles of its constitution, mm -hmm. right? That's what public defenders do day in and day out. Hold the government to the principles of their constitution, proof beyond a reasonable doubt before you put somebody in prison and take away their freedom. Uh, it's And it's not gone unnoticed to me that I, don't, I haven't seen anybody mention that, oh, I don't know, it was 1770 or so when John Adams represented the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre. Right. That was a huge controversy at the time. You know why he did it? Because everybody's entitled to a defense. That was one of the most important cases in colonial America and formed the bedrock, I believe, of uh, of the American criminal jurisprudential system. Mm -hmm. Right. And no one 
no one can criticize John Adams of not being a patriot and not loving the country that he founded and being the second president of the United States. But he took the unpopular position of defending British soldiers on American soil of murdering Americans. And all Judge Jackson did was get appointed to represent Guantanamo Bay detainees and did, from what I can tell, did it extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. And to criticize her for that, um, I found uh, completely outrageous. Um, and uh, and it's just, you know, a, a wholesale abrogation of the foundation of American criminal justice um, and the, 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 the senators who are presenting that. And yeah, I'm going to say it. I'm looking at you, Lindsey Graham. I'm looking at you, Josh Hawley. And I'm looking at you, Ted Cruz, to, to take that in Judge Jackson's background and raise it as a negative, I think is the height of sophistry. Now, Part number two, that's equally problematic with me, is the suggestion that she wasn't sentencing hard enough on certain crimes because she sentenced below the federal guidelines. This is a person who sat on the Federal Sentencing Commission, who helped write or revise those very, those very same federal guidelines, sentencing guidelines. Mm -hmm. Number one, federal guide sentencing guidelines are not mandatory. They are suggestions. So says the United States Supreme Court. So you do not have to sentence within them. Mm -hmm. Number two, this sends a really, really dangerous message to all the judges out there sitting in trial courts who have aspirations to move to a higher bench. And that is, if I have a case where justice looks like it might call for a below guideline sentence, I'm going to have to sentence within the guidelines or above them, because when I sit in Judge Jackson's seat, I'm going to get that question. So I got to be tough on crime. So the question now becomes, is being a judge and being confirmed to be a justice or a federal judge, is it about justice and equity and fairness, or is it about point of view? And from what I've seen from the people who are opposing Judge Jackson, it looks a hell of a lot more like point of view than actual justice and rule of law. I feel very strongly about this. Right? <laughs> I do. I, 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 especially when it comes, I started my career as a public defender. Um, some of the best lawyers I've ever known are former pub and current public defenders and former public defenders. Um, and when I see anybody disparage them, um, I I take it personally. Get a little mama bear on I, 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 I take it downright personally because it's very, very hard work uh, with all the odds stacked against you, financial, political, uh, social. Um, and, and the people who have done it and do do it deserve my highest praise and support. Cool. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for letting me rant. Right. I'll step off my soapbox now and leave, and leave you to what you're doing for the rest of the day. <laughs> See you soon. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's upcoming Alan S. Becker and Gary A. Polyakov preeminent leaders in law speaker series with featured spring speaker Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Justice. 
The April 28th event is open to the public. For more information, visit www.miamilaw.com.